Welcome to episode 22, Addiction Group Counseling, Managing the Mayhem, by Heather Blackcoin, Certified Alcohol and Drug Abuse Counselor. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hi, welcome to Critical Thinking for Addiction Counseling. I'm Heather Blackcoin, and for the next hour, we're going to talk about addiction group counseling, managing the mayhem. It's a standard component of treatment. It's something that we do as we get into this industry. Oftentimes, it's required as part of the job that you do, and there isn't a lot that really prepares us for the different dynamics that show up in that group room. It is such a rich experience oftentimes crazy, very valuable and honorable um, part of the process to to be a part of. I really appreciate groups and really love groups and have been really challenged by groups in the past. And so all the dynamics that show up, not only in the group setting, but it's really within the individuals that are coming into the treatment center. All those variables, all those dynamics, they come into group, they play out, and they can really make a great, make or break a group. So we're going to talk about different approaches to running an addiction group, talk about some of the pitfalls, which some of you guys may already be familiar with. Maybe you've experienced a really good group, and maybe you've experienced a group that was really challenging. We're going to talk about critical thinking skills and effective leadership. We want you to be empowered. I want you to be empowered to show up and really own the group space and run it rather than having the group run you and walk away just feeling drained and not feeling really good about the process. So we're going to talk about that. Obviously, groups have a huge role in the substance use disorder treatment. We'll go over that some, and then we'll get into the skills and the necessary um, qualities of the facilitator, skills of the facilitator to really be effective in a group setting. So group counseling and treatment 101. Groups, as I said, can be really exciting. They can be energetic, riveting, on the tip of your toes or on the edge of your seat as you're watching your clients engage and support each other and dig deep in a way that maybe they've never ever dug before. That stuff is really exciting and you walk away and you come out of group and you think, oh my gosh, that was the best group ever, and you just feel alive, and your energy's through the roof. I was um, in the hallway the other day, and one of my coworkers came up to me, and she just said, oh my gosh, Heather, that was the best group. And I asked her, what about the group made it really good? And her eyes were lit up. She was almost a little teary at times, and... She just shared about the way that each member of the group participated, took accountability for their role in the group, supported each other, collaborated, brought it around to a full discussion. Even clients who typically wouldn't engage were engaged in really cool ways that she was able to provide examples of. And that joy and that excitement in that experience that I was watching her have, that's really the power of a group. She walked away feeling like that, and I imagine that several other members of the group walked away feeling like that as well. It's a really beautiful, magical process. On the converse, the group can run you, and you can walk out of there feeling like it just sucked the life out of you. You can go, you can feel like, you can know a group dynamic and before you even go into that group, feel like the group is going to suck the life out of you. And you can count on if you're feeling that way, oftentimes the clients in that space will also be feeling that way. But everybody knows that group, that group that's just, ick. it doesn't really get anywhere. You're struggling with the dynamics the whole time. You're not really sure what you got out of it, what you delivered for the clients, and you're not really sure that they got anything out of it. And it just felt like a waste of time. 
and clients walk away from groups saying that that group is a waste of time. And I've spent a good amount of time reviewing feedback from group surveys and clients will often say, I don't get anything out of this group. I don't know what this group is about. This group is a waste of time. And that's really heartbreaking considering they spend so much time in groups that you really want their time to be valuable and that their experience is maximized by all the colorful opportunities and dynamics that exist in the group. So they can all work for you and the group and all those colorful dynamics can certainly work against you. So just know, and maybe you already know, I hope that you've had some really great group experiences, that they're powerful and it's a magical place. As I said just a second ago, powerful in either way. So the role of group therapy in substance use disorder treatment is that it really supports self-efficacy through connection, practice, corrective experience, peer influence. Clients begin to process shame by way of realizing that they're not alone in their own behavior, by their peers being able to empathize with them, relate to them, understand them, and maybe for the first time the client begins to feel understood. So they have this sense of agency over themselves and their emotion and the experience that they're having, begin to understand that there are some positive consequences of sharing out loud and having this exchange and dialogue with another human being and that positive consequences that it it can start to reduce some of how I'm feeling on the inside. They move from a place of feeling alone and unique to connected and empowered and I can almost for the majority a generalization but for the majority of clients I can watch that process happen where they come in they're quiet, their arms are crossed, they don't engage much, they don't talk much, they sort of side-eye the person who's talking, and it almost looks like they're relating or connecting, but their facial and body language isn't in a space where it gives you too much information about what they're thinking about, how that what information is being shared, and then can end up at the end of the process just open and alive and sharing and bringing in the new guy whose arms are crossed. And so this role, this group role in substance abuse treatment, it provides education. It allows a forum where you can deliver the same information to multiple people, but it also allows process and human relationship and at the core of who we are connectedness is important and there's a lot of opportunity in that group setting for that they allow the client to learn formally from the leaders their presentation the education that you're providing and informally through the experience of their peers and oftentimes some of the richest learning is from that of their peers you can say, I can say one thing and their peers say the exact same thing and there's something about what or how that peer said it that made so much sense that they just hung their hat on it and they got it. And that's a beautiful process because they're not going to hear everything that I say or that you are the, as the leader is going to say. But if somebody can pick up on it and translate it, that's where some of the magic begins too. So there's a variety of groups. There's process groups, experiential groups, psychoeducational groups, and the format of the groups may vary depending on the type of group it is. A psychoeducational group might be more lecture-based. It might be myself standing at the front of the room delivering psychoeducational material, material to a classroom-type setting. Whereas a process group, we might have our chairs set up in a circle and I'm in the circle, we're all in the circle and we're going to process and we're just going to have this cross, cross circular dialogue and talk about whatever topic might be brought to the table. Either way, depending on, either way, regardless of the group that we're facilitating, there's some basic components that are really necessary, and we'll talk about those in just a second. And I'm going to talk about 
um, these foundational these foundational necessities or foundational tips for groups as being really important because a lot of our clients who are struggling with substance use disorders, they come from families that are lacking boundaries, safety, and consistency. And so establishing these things in the group is really important, but I'll touch on that a little bit more when we get there. Um, our attitude, what we bring to the group, it matters. It's important for us to model behaviors. Samsha, it, they have a tip. They have a tip for everything, and I love referencing their tips in these talks, but their tip 41 is about group counseling, and they reference the leader's attitude as being equally important to the process and what's going on in the group. They, I'm going to quote them because I don't want to mess it up, and I just think it's so beautiful. But they state in their tip, this life-affirming attitude carries the unspoken message that a full and vibrant life is possible without alcohol and drugs. How amazing is that and how powerful is that? So if anything, if anything, I get to show up and share that message. Hopefully I've got some really great group content and skills and you know, hopefully the possibilities for processing a really good group is, is, is there as well. But at the very least, at the very basis of what I'm doing, I am showing up and I'm carrying an unspoken message that life, that life is possible, that it can be exciting. Now, I tend to fall to the positive side and I get really excited about very little things. I'm a little goofy and quirky and I don't know if that always comes across as vibrant and full. And I have had feedback that it's a little too much first thing in the morning. Eight o'clock in the morning, I'm ready to go. I'm excited about life. Mornings are my favorite time of day. Mondays are my favorite time of week. I love, love, love uh, the early mornings. And not everybody does unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know. We don't all want to be the same, but uh, not everybody does. And sometimes I hear that regardless of how the room is feeling, eight o'clock in the morning, they're sleepy, haven't had enough coffee yet. I can tone it down. I receive feedback well. I get it. Not everybody is that excited about being awake that early in the morning. I can tone it down, but... I can still be excited and kind and really show that this is a life worth living, substance abuse free. Um, and I have to do, I do have to tone it down. And by the time it's time for me to tone it up for the afternoon, that's when I'm toning it down. However, I'm flexible. I can work with it and thank goodness for feedback because that really helps me connect to my clients. Um, group leadership is about a series of choices that I make to best evaluate my leadership style. I have to be accountable to my group outcomes and I, I do that by knowing which choices I made in the group, being intentional about my interventions, the things that I say, and having motivation behind it and understanding what that looks like. And when I go to look at a group and capture the outcome and my role in that outcome, it's important that I'm really aware of that because that's how I can tweak it and change it and move forward. So be thinking about that. And just to bring it back, I'm just going over some group counseling 101 things before moving on to uh, the next topics that we're going to talk about. So that was the last one that I wanted to share with that. The group leadership is about a series of choices. And, and Samsha, in their tip, they outline it really beautifully. And they ask you to think about what choices you make or don't make and the consequences that it has to the group. Why did I intervene there? How am I going to manage this conflict? Um... Why would I choose, not why would I, that sort of sounds a little shaming, I don't mean it to sound that way, but what what is my hope in using this intervention to address this conflict? And I can 
monitor it and observe it, observe it and really take full part and be actively participatory in the work that I'm doing with the clients and in this group. So the group approach, the general group approach, the general guidelines, and just a little bit ago I said that our clients, many of them come from families that are lacking boundaries, safety, and consistency, and that establishing this in the substance use disorder group is important. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that can look like here in this general group approach. And we also talked about the format of groups vary depending on the type of group it is. However, there are some consistent threads and themes that can happen in every group regardless of what type of group it is. So the group approach, generalize. Groups benefit from having a beginning, middle, and end. I found on this uh, SAMHSA presentation a framework called ROPES, R-O-P-E-S, by Bill Anthony, and the acronym stands for Review, Overview, Presentation, Exercise, and Summary. However you want to break down the sections of your group, it's important to remember the benefit of having the structure it supports you and it provides that consi- it pr- it supports you and be able- being able to facilitate the group knowing what you're doing when you're doing it where you're going with it and it provides consistency for the clients reliability something that they can expect look forward to they can gauge where we are at in the process based on knowing what the structure of the group is ropes is a nice five-step approach it's up to you whether you decide to use that or not sometimes if you have a pre-built curriculum it will already be outlined this way so whatever a beginning middle and end looks like for you I'll leave that up to you to really explore and play with. I really like the beginning part of a group. Something I learned a while ago um, in a conflict resolution training that I was in with NADAC, they, uh, Cynthia Tui was the facilitator um, and the teacher of this curriculum, and something that she brought up that was very valuable was transitions. How many transitions that we as individuals go through on any given day? Transition from bed to the living room in the morning, living room to the car, perhaps I get on the phone, maybe a child is getting on the school bus. Transition into the school yard where it's loud, the dynamics changing into a classroom, back into lunch, back into a classroom, home at night, all of these transitions. And these transitions, I I sort of framed a, a child's transitions with the school and lunch and classroom, but these transitions can be really similar for our clients as well, especially in a residential setting where they're waking up in the morning, getting into transportation, arriving and doing the group setting, going into another group facilitated by another individual, back to their properties, more of a social feel, back into group in the afternoon, perhaps into an individual session where the focus might be a little more serious or in-depth, an AA meeting at night. So these transitions are very valuable to think about because each time that a person, an individual, myself or otherwise, engages in a transition, there's a little bit of a shift. I have to orient myself to the new setting. I have to take a look around, know where I'm at, understand my feelings. Sometimes people fly in, land in their seat a second before group is supposed to start, and their transition into group might be different than the person who came in a couple minutes early, sat there, took in the space, engaged in some deep breathing. And so knowing where 
my clients have been, it's important at the beginning of the group that I allow time to transition them, orient them into the room. Sometimes it's called setting the tone, and I really like using the term setting the tone, and sometimes that's what it's called too, setting the tone for group. We'll come back to the beginning, middle, and end. I just went off on a little rant about the beginning because I like it so much, but another generalized format for group is to have established ground rules, whether you have them, a a standard of group rules that you prefer to use for your group, or the group comes up with the group rules together. And I've seen both. I've seen curriculums where they want the group to come up with them, and I've seen facilities that just have group rules that they've considered the best outline for their groups, and then they use those. Either way, it's important that your clients know what the group rules are. I'm a group rule nerd, and I like to have a copy of the group rules. Once upon a time, each of the clients had their own copy. Now I've evolved to the place where there's a copy, and we read the group rules. Um... We read the group rules every time that there's a new member of the group entering into the group. And that could be, in this industry, in the world that we work in, I could get three new members a day, three new members a week, or no new members for two weeks. And I get the eye roll occasionally when we have frequent new members and we have to frequently read the group rules. However... I found that they get really good at knowing them and utilizing them and stating them despite their eye rolls and their uh, questioning, why do we have to read the group rules again? So it does work, but that's kind of my rule of thumb. I'm a group rule nerd, and whenever there's a new member of the group, we read the group rules regardless of how many times we've read them that week. Be prepared for eye rolls, because that can happen. It's my responsibility, it's your responsibility as a leader to create safety. They've often not had a model of safety to follow, so they can unintentionally, seemingly intentionally, show up and cause unsafety in the group. Sometimes it is intentional, and we begin to understand what that looks like when it is, and sometimes they just don't know what they're doing, how it's affecting the group. And so it's my responsibility as the leader to really model what that looks like and help them engage in a process of creating safety by guiding them and showing them and hopefully having a well enough established group that they can do the same. That's our role as the leader. And I just want to say that clients are going to show up in a variety of different ways. They are going to be colorful. They might use colorful language. They might get, um, well, I I was going to say inappropriate, but something that I experience often working with men is some sort of comment about their genitalia whether it's about them being hung or um, their balls hurting or something to that effect. Something comes up that is funny to them, and I've learned to laugh at it as well, funny to them, and it it, it just is what it is. It's not good, bad, or indifferent. That's just the dynamic that they bring to the group, and it can end up being really fun. These clients... They haven't often had boundaries or consistency in their life. And so that's what I'm trying to do by having the group roles in place is establish some degree of predictability for them. Letting them know that, hey, regardless of what day it is, regardless of how we show up and what's going on outside of this room, in here, this is what you can expect to do. They don't always like it and oftentimes they press against the boundaries and limit test. However, my experience is that with those boundaries in place over time and the support of the group, we end up having way better experiences, really good groups, and they end up appreciating it.
clients, I don't know that I've ever had a client that says, I really appreciate the group roles. In fact, I don't think I've ever had a client that said that. They're not going to tell you. It's like secret squirrel stuff. Even if they did like it, they still might not tell you. However, there's a lot of benefits to it. And just know, I touched on this just a second ago, there are going to be a variety of presentations. There is the quiet guy who makes great eye contact, but is very quiet. He looks very engaged because of his eye contact, but he really hasn't said much or won't say much throughout the group. There's the playful guy who wants to joke about the topic. There's the guy, we'll just throw the guy that wants to talk about his genitalia into the playful guy. They also like to draw genitalia. There's the three guys who are serious and they're trying to engage, but they're getting a little bit tired of trying to engage too much. There's going to be the guy who's on the fence. He doesn't really know what he's doing there. He's not really sure, but he gives it a good go. He's got good heart. There's the other quiet guy who you have a hard time remembering if he was in the group. Did he come? Did he leave? Was he there the whole time? What am I going to say in his documentation about what happened? I can't really remember. There's the other quiet guy. So you got the quiet guy who's trying to be there by making eye contact. You got the other quiet guy. We're not really sure where he's trying to be. Not very memorable at all. You got the other quiet guy whose arms are crossed and side-eyeing everything that everybody's saying in there. Maybe snickering every now and again. He doesn't really appreciate what's going on, but he doesn't really want to contribute either. And I only say he doesn't appreciate it because I don't really know, but that's just the information his body's telling me. You got the guy that's the talker. He has lengthy responses to everything. And you got the guy who doesn't agree with anything that's brought up. And you have the really super positive guy. And then you have the guy, maybe this is the same guy, that wants to protect the facilitator. So you got, you got a number of dynamics. Know that you're going to walk into a group with this dynamic. And really, if you can, learn to appreciate all of those different dynamics. Eventually, with the right type of group facilitation, eventually all those colorful personalities come around and that's where the magic really starts to take place. So be flexible and allow for such richness in your group. I don't know, it might be kind of boring otherwise if everybody was the same. Although, I was going to say, although it might be kind of cool if everybody showed up and was firing on all cylinders and processing, it is cool. And that's when a, a, a group has really found their stride. But there's really a beautiful challenge in really having the art of the group and being able to create such a powerful dynamic with them. And the other generalization for the group approach is to be prepared. Know how you're going to establish safety. You know what the group rules are. You're adhering to the group rules. If you have curriculum, know it. There isn't any quicker way to get the clients to check out than having them and everybody read from a handout and the facilitator having to read from the same handout too, not really knowing the content that's on the handout. If you have handouts, be able to talk about them intelligently. There isn't anything wrong with them, and sometimes people are paper-in-hand kind of learners. But know what it is, know what you're talking about, and be able to hold and hang in a conversation about it and to educate and process with them about what's on it. But regardless, being prepared is one of the best things that you can do for yourself and for your group. Making sure your group room is in order making sure you have the supplies that you're going to need, making sure that you're in there a couple of minutes early so you can welcome, welcome group members into the space and set the tone for the pre-pre-group experience. Being prepared can be hard to do with so many time constraints on our schedule. Learning curriculum, practicing a group if we need to, all of those things that really enhance our clinical ability oftentimes get squeezed out with the demands of our job and all of the other things that we have to do in order to meet 
our job duties as outlined as addictions counselors. I get it. If you can just create some space, it will do you so much good. I promise you. Not having those fundamentals in play, those group approaches that we just talked about, not having them in play causes for the pitfalls. And I know you guys have had one of those groups where, multiple groups maybe even, where you're in one of these pitfalls. And what do they look like? You guys can probably tell me what they look like better than I can tell you. It happens across the board. We have the group that just is not on task. It doesn't get anywhere. It's sometimes called the meandering group where it slowly rolls every which direction, but not in any productive direction. Sometimes we've been in a group where one client shares the most, sometimes called the monopolized group, where this individual answers everything and answers everything in such a way that it has very lengthy responses with not very many breaths and not very many opportunities to interrupt. And you think, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop it right here. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna redirect right here. Okay, I'm gonna ask a follow-up question here. And the, the sentence is just this one long run-on sentence. And as you're thinking about trying to jump in, it just keeps on going. And that happens with almost every question, with every question that you ask. Um, then there is a therapy session in a group setting where somebody has brought up a very delicate subject that obviously requires quite a bit of process. Maybe they become emotional. Maybe it brings up something for them that just goes on and on. Little different from the monopolizer where the where the monopolizer is just stating their, their perception or their experience in such a way that's uninterruptible. But this person is really just going through it and can draw the facilitator, the leader into the group to really start to engage in a one-on-one -on -one session, a therapy session with them. There's the group that becomes a dumping ground. So groupthink happens, and this happens more often than I would like in the setting that I work in, where a client comes in and we start to check in, and one person says, he's, mm, I can't think of a good example on the fly. I'm sorry, I, was, I thought I was gonna pull an example out of the hat. He says something negative some complaint about a staff member. And then the next one proceeds to do their own check-in and we could not have even been starting with the check-in, but I asked the group, how are they? And this person, and then it just sort of goes around the room where suddenly everybody in the room hates the treatment center or everybody in the room hates 12-step groups or everybody in the room thinks that, and I keep saying everybody, but usually it ends up being about 80, 80% in this group think situation, hates having to do step work. So it just becomes this dumping ground and this brew fest for negativity. That's a pitfall. That can be tough to get out of, and that can be exhausting to sit through for any length of time. There's a very quiet group, the group where one word answers come out, you ask a question, nobody says anything, not even the one word answer. You sit there quietly smiling at them while they're looking at you, wondering if they're going to engage, and you think to yourself, wow, this is going to be a really long two hours. There are the groups where, sort of like the meandering group, the meandering group can sometimes meander and touch on very different, uh, various different recovery topics. And then there's clients that are just talking to fill the space with no real content. And sometimes I find that this happens when I didn't necessarily come prepared and I mm, felt like I needed to 
have something more to fill the time and to make it productive, and a client who wants to rescue, who wants to rescue me as a facilitator, tries to just fill the space and talk about something or anything or take it in a direction. There's also where the group, similar to the dumping ground, where the group can just pick up on a topic and they can start talking about anything, really, or little side conversations are, t- are taking place. Then there's the clients who've reacted a family dynamic and are living out the dysfunction of their family in the group with no corrective action. And I added this one because I've experienced this several times And I don't really know how many times I experienced it before I realized that that's what I was experiencing. But since I figured that out, I've seen it surface up in groups again. So I added it on here. And then there's the group that stays in a state of chaos, where it just never really starts to pick up. The rubber doesn't seem to hit the road. And it's just, it feels like noise. That would be a really good way to describe it. It feels like noise. So this can happen. It can happen even when you do have all of your skills in place. I have been running groups for a long time, and one of my most profound experiences running group, and I'll share, it's about the family dynamic. I'll share about it here in just a second or a little bit. That happened, I think, probably seven years after I had been facilitating groups. And so while I would consider myself to have good group facilitation skills, this one, this group was blowing my mind. And these pitfalls can happen even with the most experienced counselors. It's bound to happen more often, I think, as a young counselor. And The young counselor is learning so many different skills at the same time and being able to wrap them up all together and use them simultaneously in a setting can be really difficult. And what I want to say is that the general group approach, having a baseline by which you operate your group and a structure by which you operate your group allows you to put to rest some of the navigating of groups that requires energy and allows you to have time and space to pick up some of the skills that you get to practice and play out and experiment within within the group setting. As much as the consistency and the safety and the boundaries are important for the client members that are showing up to the group, it's important for the facilitator as well and especially for the young facilitator. Group counseling for substance use disorders can be quite challenging, quite taxing. So whatever you can do to set yourself up for success, I encourage you to do that. And then allowing yourself to have the space to be creative other ways is really where the love and the joy for group counseling gets to come in because you get to see all that other stuff play out. If you're constantly trying to create structure in your group, that's what you're working on is creating structure in your group. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but some of those things are just easily established by having a simple outline for your group, beginning, middle, end. What does that look like? How do you want it to look like? What will you do for a transitional period in the beginning? What will the meet in the middle of it look like? And what will a closing... I wanted to say closing ceremony, but it's not a closing ceremony. But what will the closing piece of it look like for you? For a long time, I, um, in that transition, thinking about that transition in the beginning, I would start with a writing exercise. So I would have the daily reading from just for today or um, as Bill sees it, or any other number of journals that I have, I would read it, have them write about it, and that would be our transitional, that would be us transitioning into the space. And as a closing exercise, we would go around and ask, what is one thing that you're going to take away today? 
or some other question that could just close it where they would know that the group is going to be done. Again, just to tie it back to the pitfalls, I can do all of these things a hundred times and still experience the pitfalls, but being aware of the pitfalls allows me to know how to navigate it when I'm falling into the pitfalls. So really it's good to talk about and know what's going on because then I can redirect. I know what this looks like. I know what I'm going to do here. And inevitably it's going to show up again and again, the talker, the therapy client, the no, I don't want to talk group. And I'll tell you just on a side note, the people who don't want to talk, sometimes my bubbly nature in the morning can shut people down in a heartbeat and they will be uber quiet. So that's why the feedback has been really helpful for me because when I can tone it back and just be more mellow, sometimes that creates some energy for them. So different approaches to group. There are a lot of approaches to group and there are some really amazing resources for the theory and practice of group. And what I find for myself personally is that some of the information that I read in school didn't really sink in even after I started running groups. But after being a group facilitator and then going back and reading some of the books or articles or whatever is available on group therapy, it really sinks in. It makes sense. I can connect with it and really digest it and take some valuable information away from it. So I want to encourage you to do that if you um, are a regular group facilitator and have been running them for a while. And if it's something that you're have struggled with or you've thought about exploring more, go back and read some of the literature that's available on group therapy because it makes sense in a whole different way as a result of having that experience in the group. I'm particularly fond of this Tip 41 by Samsha. And a lot of this information that we've talked about today, I've taken out of that tip. But I have another... I have other good resources that I really love as well. I haven't talked about them here, but just know that. If it helps, go back and read some of the stuff now. It can be really good and beneficial. So different approaches to running group. There, we talked about the general approach, having the structure in place. And consistency is important regardless of the type of group that you're going to be facilitating. If you're going to be moving around, if you're going to be providing education, whatever it's going to look like, you can still have the basic framework by which you operate your groups with, by which your clients can anticipate and expect the basic norm. So Samsha shares the principles of adult education, personal relevance, practical application, multi-sensory learning, self-direction, context-specific. So there's a little bit of a framework of what you want to bring to the group and what you want to have, the different dynamics you want to have in an adult education. And this is identified as adult education. One thing that I want to say is that oftentimes I have found that um, the energy that I bring to the group coupled with these things oftentimes mirrors that of an adolescent group. And I don't mean that to put down any clients that have been in the group, but I do sometimes think that the behaviors that we are up against are often immature in nature and mirror that of an adolescent group. And so I have to meet our clients where we're at and the funner that it is or the more engaging that it is while I'm providing these principles of adult education, sometimes I have better luck. And I attended this training one time and it was from a facilitator who did adult groups and the way that he engaged us was amazing and that's when I really realized that sort of energy can really hook and and be what makes a client excited for a group process. But these are the principles of adult education. Having fun in there is probably one that I would want to add. 
So different approaches, the establishing safety group. And I made up these names uh, just based off of the different groups that I've encountered and different ways that I've learned how to uh, navigate it as a result. So the establishing safety group, I would say that this is when the group is either brand new, still in its infancy stage, or has had a lot of turnover, change, disruption, and there's just a general lack of safety in there. Um, or I identify some key players who are behaving a certain way that disrupts the group process. So clients won't engage in vulnerable work if they do not feel safe. One thing I like to do is hand out some post-it notes and I ask the clients to write three things, one on each post-it note that they need to feel safe in the group and I'll have them lay them down in the middle of the group room in a circle where all the post-it notes are connecting once they've written on them and talk about the various things that they need and provide examples of how they've received that in the group previously. Once we've gone around the room and this process can take a while, it's typically a more serious group process. People seem to really drop into seriousness when we do this. But then we take it and we post our post-it notes on the back of the group room door so that they're easily referenced and that they're seen as we go out and being on the back of the door symbolizes that when this door closes, this is what's taking place in this room. It doesn't always work for the clients the following week, let's say if the group's a week apart for them to remember, but it's really easy to bring them back to it. Something that comes up often in that circle of post-it notes is respect. It's important to tease out what respect looks like for everyone because it's different. And someone could very well be operating in their own definition of respect and it looks very disrespectful to one of their peers. So this is one I spend a little bit more time on so people get a good idea of what it is that they mean. And I always share this from one of my clients. We were having this discussion, we were doing the establishing safety group and we were teasing out what respect looks like and one of my clients who never really said a whole lot um, said, respect to me isn't something that has to be earned. Disrespect has to be earned. And it was just groundbreaking. He could have dropped the mic and just walked out from there. That process was so beautiful after he said that. And I use that often when we are doing the establishing safety group because it really stands out to everybody that I share it with. So I hope it's useful to you. And if you'd like to use it, please do. The other group I would say for another approach is the let's connect to each other group. So I can be in a group and just watch patterns of surfacey interactions where no one really knows anything about each other but have talked about a lot of stuff. They may have very well been engaged in material, the group process, but never really connect on an intimate level. And what I like to do in that case is I like to bring experiential work to the group. One of my favorites is the original wound. I like the original wound because we have butcher paper, we're on the floor, we have markers out, and so it really takes us to this really vulnerable kid-like state. And I have everybody draw with their opposite hand. And this isn't my idea. I'm not sure whose idea it was, but somebody shared it with me once upon a time. But you draw with your opposite hand your original wound. And that original wound can look like whatever you want it to look like. And then each person talks about their original wound. And everyone who can relate to something in that story will draw a line from their wound to their peers wound and I have seen and learned the most incredible things about clients and oftentimes in that group 
I have those aha moments where I'm like, oh, that's why, that's why this has been happening in this group. And although I don't know that it's never necessarily articulated on that level with the clients, there is always an uh, increased sense of understanding and connectedness. And it's a very deep group. And it does require an establishment of safety. And it absolutely needs containment before everybody leaves the space. The experiential group gets clients out of their seats. And so the original wound, the last group we talked about, is an experiential type group. This one... Um, I really mean this by way of sometimes stagnation and stale air just happen from the day-to-day sitting in group chairs, talking and doing the same thing. So the experiential group where you can bring in some sociometry and have the clients out of their chair, you can pick a series of questions and have on one end of the room, if you are 100% engaged in recovery, you're going to stand over there. And on the other end of the room, if you are 0% engaged in recovery, you're going to stand over there, and then you can stand anywhere in between. Whatever, if it's a 50%, that means you'd be in the middle, and you stand wherever. And then people get to know each other through this visual of where they're at, and you can explore and ask questions and really start to engage the clients in a cool way. The empowerment group I use this group when the clients really seem to be fighting for autonomy and individuation and they want something far different than I think that I want. And I have to say, I try not to have expectations, but I kind of do have expectations when I go into a group. I really do want it to be organic and to have its really own cool, magical process. But the human nature part of me is I hope that it goes exactly this way and I'm often glad that it doesn't go my way however I can really sense when the clients when they have their own ideas and their own agendas and so I can go in there and ask them what do you guys want from this group time how can I help you guys get the most out of this time together and we brainstorm their ideas better yet we brainstorm how to implement their ideas and really see them work and take off in that group setting, which can be really empowering and really beautiful to watch. The clients have this cool ownership over something that they created. And just lastly, the educational group, I just want to say there's always going to be educational groups. There's um, general skills groups. There's relapse prevention groups. That's really common in our industry. There's always going to be the psychoeducational group. And I just want to say, whatever you can do to make it fun and interactive, it increases your experience and their experience. It's difficult to stand in front of clients and talk about the neuroscience of the disease and neurotransmitters and the synaptic gap and all of those scientific words and just watch them sort of zone out and just know, man, I got to talk about this for the next hour. So however you can engage them, ask them a question, post-it notes are a really great way to engage clients, have clients write on their post-it notes, uh, one experience when you knew that your drug and alcoholism was getting out of control and have them all write that down and post it on the wall and have them silently observe the post-its that are stuck up and see if they can identify trends and themes and then talk about that. And so you can wrap that into the early stage of addiction and tie them into it, have gotten them out of their chair and really brought them into the process. So that's the last thing that I'm going to say about different group approaches And that last one isn't necessarily a different group, the educational group, but the way that you approach it can be different. The leader of the group is like a Jedi. This person engages multiple skills at one time. A good leader is with the person that's speaking, but knows what's going on around them. They know that this person's checked out, this person's really engaged, these two guys over here are joking, cracking jokes, 
and you know where this guy is at, where he's going, what his intentions are, and you're mindfully responding, knowing what your interventions and what your choices for the next direction of the group are. We are looking for how shame is showing up in our group. It will show up often. This is a shame-based disease. They will shame themselves. They will shame others. They will shame you. And so being in the here and now, a critical skill, being in the here and now, being able to kindly confront, redirect, observe peer-to-peer observations, I mean, I'm sorry, peer-to-peer communications, is one of the biggest things that you can do. When a client, wise, another client, why as in W-Y-H, why did you do this? Why did you think that was a good idea? That's a beautiful moment to say, hey, what are you really trying to ask? Is there something, is there a concern? Is there, is there a message that you're trying to convey? What do you want to, what do you want them to know? about how you're feeling, about the choice that they made, and start to process and talk about that shame. Remember, this is a shame-based disease, and it's going to crop up, and we can choose to lean into it and help them process it, or we can shut them down like their parents did and say, hey, don't talk to him like that, or something to that effect. Processing it is that opportunity for intimacy and resolve and a corrective experience. This Jedi that you are, that you have been, that you show up as in these groups is observing what's going on in the space at all times. You have to know your group. It's not an easy task to stay with the tempo and everything that's going on. It is possible. You're analyzing, you're reflecting, problem solving, the decision making, All of these things are relevant, and they're the basic critical thinking skills of the who, what, where, when, why, just in more clinical, colorful terms. It's the same thing. It takes a while to engage all of those at the same time. And I just want to share with you that I had this experience in running a group. This was a couple of years ago. The group was chaotic. One of the clients laughed at everything. Another one took a jab at the other client every opportunity that he got. One was quiet. One was engaged. One was the the perfect student. And we did conflict resolution together. We did a number of interventions together. And I just thought there wasn't anything else that we could do. A decade went by. It was actually only two months. Very much felt like a decade. And I had done a lot of self-evaluation trying to figure out what are we going to do for this group. And I showed up to this group and I asked something of the group and the laughing client retorted with sarcasm and laughed per his usual. And I asked him kindly, I wonder if this is how you engage with your mom. And there was a pause, and he said, you know what, I think I do. And then he went on to share with me how the other members of the group reminded him of someone in his family. And the group was groundbreaking, groundbreaking, and the dynamic switched after that. And I was able to finally realize, and I talked about this a little bit earlier, clients recreate family dynamics in this space. And so if there's something going on, don't give up. I really felt like I wanted to give up. And I'm so glad I didn't because just around the bend was something so amazing and so beautiful and taught me such a valuable lesson that I've been able to use in other groups after that. It was those critical thinking skills that got me through all the months that I had been with them and felt like I was hitting a wall. It was those critical thinking skills that had me evaluating myself and thinking about the choices that I was making and led me to that next choice that was groundbreaking for this group. I hope I challenge you to be excited and try some of this stuff in your group and see how it goes. Use those critical thinking skills and see where it takes you. I hope that you've gotten something that you can take away from this that helps you begin to love this process if you don't already love it. Until next time, be well. I'll talk to you guys soon. 
You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.